fire. Four blocks away, I got a visual on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third alarm? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor Alpha Bravo corner. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the Alpha side. Today, we're speaking with 27-year veteran. We actually worked together for 20 years. So if you do your research, you might be able to find out uh, who he is. He's been nice enough to come on the show and talk about mental health. And we've had lots of conversations over the years about mental health. We're both passionate about fire service, suicide prevention. You know, we've had our own challenges in our lives and you know, we've really connected that way. So this is a pretty special show because I really get along with this gentleman. Uh, we both were firefighters. We both ended up being assistant chiefs. And yeah, we certainly had our challenges. So would you say that's a pretty good description? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. All right. Is there anything you'd like to start this episode with? Uh, no, I think I would just echo the same things that you've just said. I think mental health for first responders is vitally important, I think for all first responders. And I'm really, really glad that you're doing this. I'm glad that there is more awareness out there for first responders and some of the challenges that we may face through our careers. You know, back in the day when we started, certainly wasn't that way. I mean, I remember just the talk around the fire hall. If you went to a bad call, you could just expect guys to start one-upping everybody on the worst calls they ever had as soon as you got back. And <laughs> Yes. You know, yes, that is true. Yeah. So when do you think the change took place? I, I think it's about maybe five years five years ago, Max. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say it started the change probably started longer ago than that. I, I think it actually started quite a bit longer ago than that, but I think it really started to gain momentum and started to gain, I would say, more professional interest from the mental health professionals in the world. I think culturally, I think the fire service knew there was challenges with mental health and tried to deal with it in its own way from way back when. I, I mean, I can think of somebody we worked with that started a program for firefighters to help firefighters back when I started my career in 1992. So I think it was there, Steve. I just think it's gotten more and more recognition. And, and I also think part of the reason that it's getting that recognition is because people are finally speaking out. I think over the years, we've finally washed away the stigma of, you know, I'm a big, tough first responder, I'm a big, tough firefighter cop, I'm a big, tough paramedic, and this shit don't bother me. And I think we finally, collectively as a group, started to say, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, this shit does bother me. It does get under my skin, and I do take it home. And, and, and maybe it's not that. Maybe they knew it was there all along. Maybe it's just organizationally and culturally, we've really fully come to accept that, man, we've got to deal with this stuff. We worked in a department where we had some horrific, horrific calls. And I, I remember you were on the CIS team. You were one of those people that showed up and tried to help crews that went to a traumatic call. And I think it was a Christmas day where there was three bad calls. There was no other, everybody was away. And you end up going to debrief three different crews. And, and I remember worrying about you and you telling me the story many years later. And I, and I just... After listening to you talk, I just thought, okay, that system might work for those crews, but it certainly didn't work for guys like you. Yeah, I sure would. And in fact, I think I think there was a fourth or a fifth call that happened during that. I remember that Christmas block. There was a fourth or 
fifth call, and I remember my battalion chief calling me and asking me if, he, if, if I could go and do another diffuser. I remember saying, you know what? No, I can't. And, and I felt like shit because I felt I was letting my peers down, but I just didn't have it in me. I was done. I couldn't do another one. Yeah, that was a challenge. Well, on that Christmas note, we both have kids. We both hated working Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, I could tolerate. You know, guys were good. You could go in an hour late. You could open presents with your kids and go. And I don't think listeners understand. You know, there's one thing about being a first responder. You miss those birthdays and those Christmases. But Christmas Eve for me, I have some of the, I'd say, worst memorable calls on Christmas Eve. Because you go to people who are having their worst day and you're going there to help. But it's Christmas Eve. And I, I just, you know, just because we touched on Christmas, I just remember that of my whole career is I really, really did not like working Christmas Eve. Well, you know what's funny is that it's, it's interesting you talk about Christmas because Christmas has been a challenge for me. I have, over the past two years, really come to dislike Christmas. Coming back, I'm losing my Grinch heart, and I'm coming back to starting to enjoy Christmas again. But it has been a challenge for me. And, you know, it's funny, when you said that, you know, you, you kind of brought something back. The Christmas time and all those diffusings and and you're right all those bad calls at Christmas and and maybe that's why I really moved away from liking Christmas and that's been a challenge for me it's been a challenge for me in my relationship because Christmas should be a time of reflection should be a time of joy should be a time of bonding with your family but then you have some incidents where Christmas wasn't so cool and the outcome wasn't great one of the challenges I think for Christmas I've worked enough Christmas, and I've seen enough violence on Christmas. That, for me, is probably the, the bigger issue when you see that kind of stuff. That uh, On Christmas, you, you think that's kind of the day that, you know, we're all supposed to be cool and, and have a laugh and a joke. You know, you're going to somebody's house, and the family's not getting along, and Uncle Bill picked up a cast iron frying pan and smacked Cousin Fred in the head, and down he goes, and now he's in a heap, and there's all this turmoil, and you're there to kind of help pick up the pieces. So, yeah, I think I... I think I understand that. We did work in a pretty busy department in very dark days. Like I look back at, at the drug era and, you know, all the structure fires. And then you worked a heavy rescue for a long time. I worked a heavy rescue. We both worked aerials. And one thing about being on an aerial truck is it's just a way of transporting your you and your lieutenant or captain to the fire and you're either doing evacuation or ventilation especially at a high-rise fire like you know you work those specialized trucks you go to a ton of calls because you're backing everybody up i know you worked some bad calls and i know you you know you worked on that heavy rescue and you're very technical like with ropes i i remember it's funny i i'd been out of ropes for a while and i was on a ladder a ladder and uh, we got called to a high-rise building they were doing training and we were just going to watch well i think i'd been at a the dope on the rope as we called it for a couple of years and then someone said hey cervic you're going over i'm going i'm not going over i haven't done anything in a year i'm tied a knot and sure enough i went over and who came down to rescue me was you and you did an inverted rescue on like the 23rd floor and i remember being terrified thinking what am i doing out here and the things you think about over your career, but, uh, you know, doing a line transfer uh, at the 20, 23rd floor level with someone you don't completely trust. Sorry, man. But uh, when you're changing lines and someone's doing it, there's so many things you think that can go wrong. But I asked this question to a four-year firefighter and, and I asked him, you know, if he thought the job was dangerous. And I'm going to ask you the same question. What are your thoughts on that? What's the dangers in being a firefighter today? You look at how fires burn now. 
fires burn hotter and faster. The rate of structural collapse, it can happen faster. Houses are built so there's less compartmentalization. So fires get, they grow faster, spread faster. You know, everything is synthetic nowadays. So there's all those other dangers. I'm going to echo what we're doing here is the one thing is that we forget about how we treat ourselves and that, and not doing self-care. I think that's a, that's a dangerous environment. And there's sometimes there's, there's a bit of bravado that goes with it. And it's like, you know, look at me. The culture we came from was one of, uh, how do I say it? It was a, it was a cut-up culture, right? So if somebody made a mistake, you ripped them apart. You know, you go back to the station, you would literally shred a guy all in kind of fun. But when I look back at that, and we all did it, we were all part of it, and, you know, I've been shredded. And when I, when I look back at that, I think that's a danger. But why are we doing that? Why are we being, why are we eating our own young? Because I don't think that's cool anymore. I, and I, I can give you a specific example. I can remember going to a fire. It wasn't a giant fire. It was a small residential fire. And crew took a line off. I was driving. I was the pump operator. And, and the crew took a line off. It was great. Asked for a second line. That was great. And then we pulled another two and a half line off, and that was fine, except for I couldn't get water for that hose line. And I remember the firefighters, they were just, they were shredding me on the scene. You know, like, what's the matter with you? Can, you? can you not run the pump? Can you, you know? And it was in jest. But at the time, I was, I was questioning everything I was doing. I was like, okay. And I'm running through my mental checklist, doing everything possible to understand what the hell was going on here. And it turns out the, the valve was broke. Uh, so there's no way I was getting water on that two and a half line. So I... I think that's a danger. You know, we've established a culture where it's okay to shred somebody. Sometimes, for the most part, I think the men and women of the fire service and, and police service and paramedics, I think for the most part, they, they understand that there's part of the culture. But I think we need to be a little bit cognizant of maybe, maybe we need to ease up on that because there's the one time when you're shredding up somebody up and they're genuinely hurting. That, that fire I was talking about, I was, they were, these guys, I didn't let them, let it show. These guys were getting, like, they were just getting to me. And I really tried hard not to let it show because I was doing my best. I think that's a danger in a subculture that we have, in particular in the fire service, I think, in particular maybe where we work. I think that's a danger. How do we avoid that pitfall of shredding people up when we think we're having fun, we think we're doing that, and but maybe there's somebody out there that's, that's not really enjoying that and they're really hurting. I think that's... That's a danger. Well, I, I think 20 years ago, everybody kept their heads down and, you know, everything was top down from the battalion chief to the captain to the lieutenant down to the firefighters. But I personally just, I like being on the engine because there was less stress. You know, people make jokes about firefighters. They call them mattress backs and bucket heads and, you know, and they say, oh, you get to go to bed. I don't remember, you know, in the early days, us being able to go to sleep very often without getting a half a dozen calls. And the one thing about it is when you do go to bed, you're a super cold spring. But when you're on at least the rescue truck, there's a thousand different scenarios that you got to play out in your head when you when you check that truck. And they don't leave you until you leave in the morning. Like that coiled spring thing is real. And, you know, some guys wear it differently. But for me, you, you'll say I was a practical joker, which I was. And I loved having fun on the job. But... I also took the job seriously and, and there was a small fear inside me every day I went to work of that unknown thing that could happen or making a mistake and that culture, that's what I was actually afraid of is crapping the bed at a call or a rescue or an extrication and everybody ripping me apart. 
I think that still exists today. We- I think it probably does to some extent. And, and I think as, as leaders, we need to look at how do we change that? How do we change that culture a little bit? And I worked on this crew, and these, the two officers I had at the time, they were so switched on, and they were so good. They were amazing. Not to mention the fact that they just absolutely beat the crap out of me at ping pong. But <laughs> what they also did, though, is they drilled uh, from an auto-execution point of view and a rescue point of view. They they, they said, no, 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 the three-day rescue course, that's, that's, that's nothing. You know, you're going to work at this. And it wasn't until... You know, I watched my peers after that, you know, they were driving a rescue truck. I'm like, oh, why can't I? You know, and they were so, no, we're, we're going to do another drill. We're going to do, you know, I would go to work and they would have something set up. They're like, okay, you're going to do this. And finally, one day, they're like, okay, you're on the rescue truck. And it was fantastic. You know, I felt, I felt I'd, I'd earned the spot to be there. I felt I'd earned the knowledge, you know, drill after drill after drill and practice after practice. And then starting to get real calls and real extrications under my belt, I I was good, you know. I knew my stuff. I was good. And, you know, the trap, right? Because we all start to feel that way and it's egocentric and, and all of these things and it happens. And, and the trap is, you know, one night we went to a call and it was horrific. The person died and I felt very strongly that, you know, there, I had some responsibility in it. I know now, after <laughs> dealing with this for quite some time, I know that the death was inevitable. But, it was one of those calls where, you know, I remember walking home the next day and I was shattered. I was a wreck. It involved a young person and they were trapped in the car and we rolled up on scene. And, you know, when we looked at the, the car, the car was destroyed. That's all I can say. It was destroyed. We could not, I could not, we, I guess it's the loyal, you know, we, but really I was the subject matter expert and, I could not cut this person out of this car in a timely manner. I ended up going to the hospital with them, grabbed by the ambulance crew. The person was intubated. I was bagging them all the way into the ER. So I was lived that call from start to end when they called it in the ER. And wow, you know what? I, I went home the next day. I was shattered. I was just shattered. I, I don't know how to, else to describe that. Well, you... You know what? We worked on the same shift for many years, and I know, you know, I'm not here to blow smoke up your ass. That's not why I asked you to be on the show. But I know, you know, being on a on an MBI motor vehicle incident on the freeway with an overturned semi on a car, and that rescue's coming and you're on it, I think, I know I'm smiling, and I know a bunch of other guys know we're getting the best crew showing up to help us. And I think that's what, you know, maybe the listeners wouldn't understand is that, it's teamwork when you're on a crew, but it's also teamwork when those other people show up. You know, you're talking about going home and being shattered. I remember, and you know what, I said it in my TEDx, I, I felt really strong in my career. I felt good about who I was and what I could do. And then my daughter got sick at four weeks and she was in the hospital and intubated. And, you know, we thought we we're going to lose her with this. Well, they told us we were probably going to lose her. And I decided to go back after work after 10 days because she's in isolation and I just needed a break. So I went and hung out with my son, got him to daycare and I went and did four shifts. And in those four shifts, I had, I did CPR on three kids and I remember being numb. Like I remember just being completely numb. And I remember because the bottle, a lot of times I thought kind of just got me through those tough periods. So 
that's the person I went to as the 26er that I had stored away and I would start working on that. And the funny thing about dealing with your your own personal, I don't even know what the word is. I mean, I know what counselors will tell you, but for me, I was doing really well up until my daughter got sick. And then I think going back to work, I felt it was my safe place, even with all the trauma and all the, the gore. But I completely crashed in those four days. Have you ever had a call in your career that you've been there and just went, what is happening? And, and I think every first responder has, but I, I think for listeners that have never arrived on a call where, you know, there is trauma, I, we seem to hold it together, but we really don't when we go home. No, no, you know, the, the home world is so separated from what you can do or see or feel or whatever when you're at work. My belief is that you go home from this environment and, you know, maybe that's why there's marital strife and maybe that's why those other issues happen in the home front is because you go home and, and the issues you've just dealt with in some cases, you know, because you didn't cut the lawn yesterday or whatever, those are small potatoes. And in your world, you really start to prioritize what starts to become really, really important because you start to see, you know the value of life because you see life end. And that's not fun. And, and and anybody who's been out there and seen that up close and personal in a, you know, in, in any environment, but particularly, you know, in first responders where you work, it's not a controlled environment. You know, yeah, we say we do team control, but, you know, how much control do you really have on the highway working on a car, trying to cut a car apart on the highway, and the rain is coming down sideways, and the wind is blowing, and cars are still moving by at 65 miles an hour two lanes away. You know, how much control do you really have? And I, I think that's an issue. You know, you, you said something, Stephen. You, when does that all start, right? And and we talked about this maybe a little bit before the, we started this. And, you know, I remember words from you. I remember a, a night working with you. We're on a busy truck. We're at the busiest station, the busiest truck. And we're going from call to call to call. And we're in an area of town that is not that great. And we went to... <laughs> The first call was a burning complaint. Sounds like an innocuous complaint, but people don't know what it is. It's just basically, you know, somebody's not allowed to do backyard burning, so fire department goes down, put the fire out. Everybody's happy, little education for the homeowner, and away we go. And we went to this particular burning complaint. It was a bunch of neo-Nazi skinheads jumping through a bonfire. We had to get the cops there. It was a bit of a debacle. I still remember... <laughs> how the police officers treated the uh, people, and I was super happy how they did it. And then we went from there, we left that, we got back in the truck, and we left, and we were going back to the station, another call came in, and we'd been down in this area already for a couple other calls, and it came in for an overdose. And we went for an overdose, and this was back in the days before the fire departments were administering the zone, way back when, and it was a heroin overdose when heroin was all the rage. And I remember we, we we're with the uh, the paramedics, the ALS crew came in, and they said, okay, we're going to give Narcan, and we all kind of steadied up. And they gave this shot of Narcan, this guy jumped up, he ripped the O2 mask off, he pulled the airway out of his face, he threw it on the ground, the air mask went flying, and he immediately started looking for his girlfriend who we wanted to beat up. I remember looking over at you, <laughs> and your words were, wow. My give a shit tank is full, and, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I remember that, and it was like, wow, 
It's funny because I remember that neo-Nazi call and I remember when the police arrived and how that all went down and I was happy too. It was like, yes, with their pit bulls running around. I remember that, but I don't remember saying something like that. I can't see oh, myself. Pretty funny. I can't see myself saying something like that. Okay, why would someone say that? Like I don't. I, that's how, what year was that? Oh gosh, that was probably ninety-five. <laughs> wow. Okay. Say that though, but think about it. Why would you say that in that environment? What are you supposed to do? You know how do you how do you, you know like you say for the general listeners? How do you how do you quantify that? That's out of the realm of most people. That. Those two calls right from there, and I know we've had a couple others, and I cannot remember what they were. But how do you how do you quantify that? Well, I think for first responders is you can't even tell people the darkness you see after midnight when people go to bed and wake up in the morning to the birds chirping, and you've worked all night, and horrific things have happened, and they haven't made the news. Like, you can't even come home and tell your wife or kids about it. You can only... No, you can't. And the funny thing is you don't even want to talk to your crew about it. You know, I, I'm disappointed in myself that I would say something like that, but you just get tired of seeing darkness and you get exhausted of, you know what? And I, this, this, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but that area we were working in was very, very low income. And, you know, you seem to get very, very consistent calls in a low income area, usually drug related, shooting, stabbings, ODs, those types of things. But um, that burning complaint with the, the skinheads was actually a bonus. But, uh, you know, if you, if, if you look at what a, what a first responder sees, you, there's no book. I mean, that was the one thing I would say. You go back to when we started, nobody told us how we would feel or even prepared us. You know, it's funny because... I just told this story about two weeks ago and I went to a shooting. I won't get into the details, but it was a very, very messy call. And when I walked into the room, we had just been eating a, a Mexican salsa salad thing before we left the hall. We were just eating lunch. I could never eat that again. But when I go with my family to Wendy's, they'd all want, you know, burgers and stuff. As soon as I smelt Wendy's, I immediately thought of that one call, that horrific homicide we went to and I couldn't figure it out so it was funny because one of the guys I got on with was was doing a shift trade that day and he was on the truck and I didn't see him like at least a year later and I said hey you know that call we went on and uh he said yeah and I said does it bother you he goes no not at all why and I said well every time I smell Wendy's I think of that call and he said to me that makes total sense because there was a half-eaten hamburger there and a Wendy's bag you would have smelt it, but wow. I never saw it, but I smelt it. Wow. So you think of stuff just like that. I never saw the hamburger or the bag, but yet the smell of Wendy's would trigger an event for me every single time I smelt Wendy's. And here's the funniest thing about that story is, as soon as he told me that, I could eat Wendy's immediately after that. No problem. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, I can relate to all those issues. I mean, visually, from your sense of smell, all those things, I, I can share the same thing. A very grisly industrial accident. I remember going at Christmas two months later, you know, that whole Christmas thing again, and looking at a turkey leg. Yeah, I won't get into it, but it was like, I can't eat that. I just, no, no I'm good. I cannot eat that anymore. Hmm. And it took a while, a couple of years, before I could actually eat that again. So, yeah, I, I, when you say that, I totally understand. It rings a bell. 
you can't even to your crewmates, and we're not trying to freak the listeners out here, but this is an opportunity for you to crawl into the heads of a first responder. So that ends part one of the changing of a culture. Please join us in the next episode, part two. And thank you for listening and helping us change the stigma when it comes to mental health. Thank you.